Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So to begin his, his encouragement, he reminds them of something. Maybe you need to be reminded of it today. And that is Jesus is the way to heaven. Now remember verses 1 through 4. Uh, this is the continuation of a conversation that began in chapter 13. Jesus is providing an answer to, Jesus, to, to Peter's question in verse 36 of chapter 13, where he asks, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus provides this answer in verses 1 through 4. Now, some of the things that would have kind of set the stage for the disciples to be so discouraged are the things that Jesus told them in chapter 13. Some of those things was, would be that, number one, Jesus would be betrayed by one of the disciples. Jesus would be betrayed. Number two, that Jesus would leave them. And number three, that he would be denied by Peter. All of this is implying to the disciples that a dangerous situation is coming. That something bad is about to happen. And it's true. This was the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Okay? So Jesus is addressing their troubled hearts, which is why he begins with the command in verse 1, which says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The reality was their hearts were trouble, but Christ commands them not to let them be so. Now, that just seems kind of crazy of just like, hey, I know you're sad. Quit it. Like, what? But what does he do? He says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The way out of their trouble was to focus on believing in God and believing in Christ, just as they believe in God. And this section is So packed with, and I want you guys to notice as we go through, Jesus equating himself with the Father, or in other words, talking about the mutual indwelling that they experience as being one in essence. This is what we know as the Trinity. The the nature of God is that he is one in essence, three in person. We're going to talk about that more later, but that is kind of the basis of what he is doing. He's foreshadowing this heavy emphasis that he's going to talk about. But he also says, believe in me. Believe in the comforting words that I'm about to share with you. That is how you won't be troubled, by focusing on the promises that I'm making to you now. Now, in verse 2, it says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not told, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So the Father's house here is heaven, and Jesus emphasizes how many rooms are, there are. Friends, There's a lot of room in heaven. There is a lot of room in heaven, and God will make accommodations to his people. Whenever we're going through difficult situations, when we feel lost, we must remember the hope of heaven, that the things that we're going through in this life will not always be this way, because for believers, Christ is preparing a place for you. He is preparing a place for you for you. This is about heaven, where Christ is now. Now just imagine for a moment, where were the disciples? 
They were in distress. They were fearful. They were terrified. They were lost. And Jesus tells them something that will bring them comfort. That he will be going, yes, but he is going to prepare a place for them in heaven. And if you are a believer, Christ is preparing a place for you as well. This is a clear passage that's in reference to what I believe is what, what we call the rapture. The idea that in the last, last days, Christ will come and take us to himself, right? Christ will return for the church and we will be with Christ in heaven. And that is a comforting reality because there's going to be a, a tribulation or, 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 or a time in which horrible things are going to be happening on this earth. But there is comfort knowing that Christ will spare us from that. And this is similar, you'll read it in your discussion, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, which is another passage that references the rapture, it ends with saying these words encourage each other with these words. The reality is the hope of heaven is supposed to be an encouragement in our temporary distress. The hope of heaven is supposed to be encouragement in our temporary distress. So yes, Jesus was about to die. He was about to be buried, but he wouldn't stay dead. If we know the story of the Bible and read the the account in the book of Acts, we know that Jesus was resurrected and he walked among the disciples, among many eyewitnesses, and eventually ascended to heaven. So he did go to heaven and he began to prepare a place for the disciples and for us. He kept his true, kept true to his word here. Then he reminds them in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, And you know the way where I'm going. Now, you'll notice that Thomas is like, No, we don't. But I think that Jesus is saying this because he is already referencing the fact that he has shared the way to heaven. We're in John chapter 14 at this point. He has already shared in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, this idea. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus has already shown them the way. He told them that he did. Jesus has already shown them that in chapter 3. And even if they couldn't make the connection, which Thomas shows us, uh, Jesus had already shown them the way. So after providing this encouragement, The disciples will respond with a few questions in this passage. And the first one is from Thomas. Thomas says this, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? How can we know the way? So Thomas, what is he known for? Do you guys know his nickname? Doubting Thomas, okay? So Thomas had yet to know what it looks like to walk by faith. In John chapter 20, we'll see that he demands or asks to see the scars in the resurrected Christ, to believe that he has actually been raised from the dead. And here Thomas is asking, how can we know where you're going when we we don't know the way? And he is basically talking about this disconnect between wanting all the answers Instead of walking by faith, the reality is in my own life, what I've experienced is that when you follow Jesus, it is one step at a time. It is one step at a time. You don't always know exactly how things are going to end up. You don't always know how things are going to go, but you walk one faithful step at a time. 
That's what's different about faith is Thomas, he wanted to know the destination, but faith is about taking it one step at a time. Jesus clarifies in an enigmatic way, in a way that is not very clear, but it is clear in some respects. He doesn't provide a physical answer to them on where he is going. He provides a spiritual one, and he begins by reminding them of his deity. Now, in this, in this uh, series, we've been talking about all the I am statements, and this is the sixth I am statement in the book of John. And when he says I am, he is, he is calling to the Jewish listeners that he is equating himself with Yahweh. He's equating himself with God. He could, the language here is an emphatic I am. He could have just said a simple way of saying I am the way, the truth, the life. But he says it in a way in which the Jewish listeners would reference back to when God revealed his name to Moses. So when he says, I am, he is saying, I am God, okay? But he also is revealing a, an aspect of God. That is what Jesus's, Jesus did when he came to this earth, was he is the revelation of God. So he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you might think this is a confusing answer, but it is a spiritual answer. He is saying that he is the way. The way. And I think that's the most significant, most dominant answer in view because Thomas has been asking about the way. He has told the disciples that he's leaving all these things. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just going to show you a way. I am the way. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. After talking about heaven and going and preparing a place, he tells them the way to heaven. Tom Constable, he notes that religions that assign Jesus a role that is different from the one that the Bible gives him do not bring people to God or eternal life. Jesus is the only way to heaven. It is exclusive. It is dogmatic. This is a clear. Now, most of you guys know I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Love Star Wars. And The Mandalorian is a Star Wars TV show about a bounty hunter and a green little alien. Okay? Sounds really great, right? Well, as the show progresses, it dives into kind of the background and the history of the main character, The Mandalorian, and basically talks about his religion and his culture and all these things. And to be a Mandalorian in the TV show is to be a follower of the way. You may have seen the memes, this is the way, right? And the way is this lifestyle, this set of rules that essentially, if broken, you're removed from being a Mandalorian. And the way is a non-negotiable list of rules to its devout followers, and there are clear parameters to follow the way. Now, Disney stole this from the Bible because if you read the book of Acts, followers of Christ were known as followers of the way. Many critics in this show, Disney show, say that it's too dogmatic. It's too strict. And I'd probably agree because these Mandalorians made up the rules themselves. They made these self-determining rules that basically defined what it meant to be a Mandalorian. The way of God, however, the way to God is defined by God in the person of Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Now, some people, like with the Mandalorian, have a hard time with this because they say it's too exclusive, it's too dogmatic. They want to believe that every religion has their own unique way to God. 
Some want to say this is exclusive. Some want to say it's mean. But here's the reality. This is not our universe. We are not God. It is God's universe, and he makes the rules. And the rule is that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. If Jesus is truly God, if Jesus is truly God, then his words must be true. And that comes to the second point. He is the truth. The incarnation, or where the word became flesh, as John 1 puts it, the word being Jesus Christ, is the revelation of God. Jesus is the ultimate word, which means revelation, peeling back of the curtain of God. And this means when we look at Jesus, we look at God. We look at God in the flesh. And because Jesus is God, he is the personification of truth. We need not wonder if Jesus' words were true because he is God. And if he is God, his words must be true. He is the definer of truth. Lastly, Jesus is the life. In John's gospel in the book of Hebrews, we see that all things were created through Jesus. John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, talk about how all things were created through Jesus and how all things are sustained through Jesus. He is creator, and he is the one who created and the one who sustains life. So if you have breath in your lungs, you can thank Jesus Christ. Okay? He is the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Or as I understand it, he is how we truly understand the way to eternal life, how we truly understand the way to eternal life, okay? Put simply, Jesus is the way to true life, and here we see him clearly proclaim that he is the way to heaven. And because Jesus is the only way to heaven, he is the way to true life, Christians must be exclusive. You can't be Christian and Hindu. You can't be Christian and Muslim. To be a follower of the way, which was first coined by the church, not Star Wars, we must abandon all other hope and ways to heaven and put our faith in Christ alone. This means that not only other religions, but our own self-belief that we can be good enough to get into heaven, or that we can do enough religious acts that God will give us favor for doing the right things. Christianity is not a trophy that you earn but it is a gift that has been given. Now in verse 7, Jesus continues to help them see his deity. All of these claims are founded on the fact that he is God. The verse continues with this theme of equating God the Father and himself. They are one in essence, yet distinct in person. It says, if you had known me, you, had a, you would have known my Father. Some of the translations it says is basically, as you know me, you know my Father also. This idea that because the disciples saw Jesus, they were in essence seeing God. What Jesus is trying to get across is that since they know who he really is, they also know God. So as you see Jesus, you see God. So let us see him as he truly is. Let's discuss these ideas, then we'll come back and talk about the last few verses. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So just some background on what Philip was probably asking was what many people throughout church history have asked is, 
Lord, show me yourself. And this is, some we'll talk about it in a moment, but essentially what Philip was requesting in this moment was what we know as a theophany or a manifestation of God. This happens many times in the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis 18 with Abraham. We see it with the burning bush in Moses on Mount Horeb. We see it with Jacob whenever he wrestles God. We see it with the Israelites when they're in the wilderness and they have the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. We see these manifestations of God. And what Philip didn't realize was that Jesus was a full revelation of God. He was missing the, the whole reality that Jesus was a full revelation of God. Yet, what I want to point out is that we are all so similar to Philip. How often have you longed or hoped to see God as he truly is? To see him face to face, to behold his beauty. This is a hope of heaven. That one day in our glorified state, we will be able to see God as he truly is. Historically, Christians have held to this doctrine. It's called the beatific vision. And it's the hope that one day we will experience God as he truly is, face to face. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 3.12. He says, For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. When we are glorified one day, we will see God as he truly is face to to face. This will be the most glorious experience that we could possibly imagine because we will be perfected and we will be able to look upon the beauty of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being able to behold God as he truly is? This is the hope of heaven. Yet what Jesus wants them to understand is that they are physically seeing the incarnate in the flesh, God. Jesus in verse 9 answers, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. One of the clearest examples that we see in Scripture, Jesus is equating himself with the Father. When Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, he is, the, he is reminding them that he is God. In John 1, the prologue, John lays the groundwork for all of this. I don't know if I have it, but it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God made, him no, made himself known through Christ. Unfortunately, for the disciples, this was not in their disciple handbook, okay? So John had not written his gospel during the ministry, but after his ministry. So they didn't have the benefit that we do now of reading John 1 before the entire life and ministry of Christ. We get to know his identity, which sets the groundwork for the rest of the book. But uh, when we see verses 9 through 10, we see that Jesus is helping us see a little bit into this dimly lit mirror, that Jesus is God. And we say, when we say that Jesus is God, I want you all to memorize this phrase. 
God is one in essence, but three in person. God is one in essence, three in person. I'll say it one more time. God is one in essence, three in person. On your table, you should have a a picture that looks like a little triangle. And this picture is what we know as probably the best depiction of visually understanding the Trinity. So when we say that God is one in essence, three in person, God is the Son, God is the Father, God is the Holy Spirit, but the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons, but one God. On the back of your, that, that picture is what is known as the Athanasian Creed. This was written in the 5th or 6th century, but it was essentially to help people understand this doctrine of the Trinity. It, to be Christian is to believe in the Trinity. We cannot deny the very nature of the one who we proclaim to have faith in, right? We need to understand him. And this is the best image that we have to explain the Trinity. The Trinity, the Godhead, the triune God, it is all the same thing. This idea that God is one in essence, three in persons. They're all co-equal, all co-eternal. So Jesus, in verses 9 through 10, what he is talking about is this mutual indwelling, the one essence nature of the Godhead. It is a recognition of his essence as God. And that's what we mean when we say that Jesus is the true essence of God. He is not a form of God. He does not merely appear as God. He is the true essence of God. Now, if this is confusing for you, I have a clear next step for you. If you're like, oh, that's way above my pay grade. I don't really need to know that. You need to know this. You need to study this. This is important. This matters to our understanding of who God is and how he acts in redemption. Study the Athanasian Creed. I have it on the table. Print it out for you. You don't even have to print it off. You don't even have to Google it. You can look at this. And this is essentially the doctrine of the history, doctrine of the Trinity that has been practiced and believed by Christians for centuries, okay? So just to be clear, you must believe in the Trinity to be a Christian. You cannot deny the very nature of the one who you profess faith in. So if this is confusing for you, if you're like, meh, whatever, that is the wrong reaction to this beautiful doctrine. Study it. Learn about it. And the reason why you should is, A, because it is God, and we should seek to worship him both in spirit and in truth. And in truth. It will lead you to a greater sense of worship. It will lead you and protect you from heresy. And it will lead you to a more intimate relationship with the one who you love, the one who your faith is in. When you read his word, when you pray, you'll have a deeper understanding of who God is. So Jesus is the way to true life by being the way to heaven and the true essence of God. But also, Jesus promises life-changing ministry. The next few verses provide some of the most misinterpreted, out-of-context readings that you will hear in today's age. Verse 12 begins, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So some have interpreted this, that the disciples would do miracles of more significance. But what this means is that the disciples and the church would do greater miracles numerically. Think about it. In Jesus' day, 
few followed him. Look around you. <laughs> How many Christians are in this room alone? How many Christians are in the world globally? God worked through the church. The church exploded. They, the apostles, they were able to when you look at the book of Acts, you can see the testimony of how the church grew in the acts of the Holy Spirit through these apostles and church leaders. See, the apostles in the early church, they performed signs, greater works, that validated Jesus' truth claims. What he said here came true. What he said here came true. They weren't greater in power, but they were greater in number. We don't see anyone raising people from the dead. We don't see anyone feeding the 5,000 with a small lunch, okay? Now, some of these, uh, some believe that these gifts are still active. Some believe uh, that these things are still being performed today. But a study of church history has shown that these gifts are no longer normative. And I believe that God can still work using these signs and gifts. And sometimes I believe that he still does. But I don't believe that it is necessarily normative. Okay, And you see this all throughout church history that the sign gifts weren't necessarily practiced for centuries upon centuries, but had a rebirth in the early 1900s. Okay? But in verses 13 through 14, let's continue. It says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Guys, prayer is not a magic genie bottle. It is not a magic genie bottle. It is not, ask whatever you wish and I will give it to you. But what does it say? Whatever you ask, read it. Whatever you ask, in my name. This verse is so often misquoted, it's unbelievable. They forget the conditional phrase, in my name. Some people, when they quote these verses, they, they forget this condition. But the question is that we have to ask, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Is it just to attach the words at the end of the prayer? I think it is less a word posture and more a heart posture, right? It's less a word saying the words and more the heart of your prayer. See, we just, I just said in verse 12, greater works than these will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay, so it's this idea of, guess what? It's not about giving you the glory, giving you what, the want, what you want, but when we pray in Jesus' name, the Father may be glorified in the Son. So it's not merely attaching the words at the end of the prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. It is praying in accordance to God's will. It is praying in accordance to God's will. Praying in Jesus' name is not a word phrase, but a heart posture. So, the next question is, how do we do this? How do we pray in accordance to God's will? Well, I think we have to become familiar with God's language by studying his word daily. What is God's will? Read the word of God. What is God's will? Read the word of God. Read it daily. We cannot assume we are praying in accordance with God's will on vibes. Okay? We cannot assume that we are praying in accordance to God's will because we feel really strongly about. We pray in accordance to God's will by reading his word, that Jesus is the way to true life. Then and only then can we pray confidently. 
So you might have walked in today feeling lost. Last night you laid your head down on your pillow and you might have felt terrified, fearful, unfocused, uncertain about the future. But I hope today you remember one thing and that is Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. That Jesus is the way to true life. And because Jesus is the way, because he is the truth, because he is the life, we must follow him. We must believe in him and we must live in him to find heaven. Do you know what the biggest feeling I remember from that time whenever I was lost in the grocery store? The thing that I remember the most is when I finally found my mom. Whenever I finally found her, I ran to her and I gave her the biggest hug. And whenever we read this passage today, whenever we look at this passage today, the feeling of relief and love that I felt when I embraced my mother, believers, we must remember, if we feel lost, we must remember that in him, we are found. We are found. There is no better feeling than knowing the way to that loving embrace of our heavenly father. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I pray that as we discuss this today, God, that you'd be glorified. Lord, I pray that you would be honored. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would protect these students, that you would guard their hearts, that they would seek to follow you, believe in you, and live in you, Jesus Christ. Dear Holy Spirit, I pray that you would settle in our hearts today and would guide us and protect us and lead us to the truth. I pray that you would manifest yourself in our life in the way that we love others. And God, that you would ultimately be glorified and satisfied with our work. That one day you would look upon us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us honor you with our whole lives, not just Sundays. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.